Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. I'm Rebecca Catlin, member of IOMP Research Committee and Podcast Team, where we are having informal discussions about clinical case studies that other IOMP members have written. One of the criteria for the cases is that they are unique or novel in some way. Today, I am pleased to have Dr. Antigone Vesey joining me to discuss her case study. Her case involves a young girl with an elbow fracture that is not often seen in physical therapy. When Antigone consulted the research, she found very little information on conservative care treatment options. Antigone will discuss with us her clinical reasoning framework and how her understanding of anatomy, biomechanics, and manual therapy led to excellent outcomes in this case. Before I bring Antigone onto the show, let me give you a little background on Dr. Vesey. She is a sports certified specialist, currently working at, as an athletic trainer and physical therapist at Illinois Bone and Joint Institute in Glenview, Illinois. Prior to joining IBJI team this past August, she completed the University of Illinois at Chicago's Fellowship in Orthopedic Manual Therapy. Antigone is also a specialist and professional speaker for O2X, providing tactical athletes with injury prevention and pain science education. Antigone received her Bachelor of Science in Athletic Training in 2012 and her Doctor of Physical Therapy in 2014 from Boston University College of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences. Antigone has worked across the country from Boston to LA with all levels of human performance from spinal cord injured veterans to professional athletes. She is dedicated to providing evidence-based and patient-centered care to all age groups and demographics. In her free time, Antigone likes to paint, sing, and play piano, and volunteer as a medical health professional. Antigone, welcome to the American Academy podcast. I'm excited to have you tell us about your case study, and I'll let you give us the background of the case. So go ahead and tell us about the background and a little bit about your subject. Thank you, Becca. I'm excited to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this case. So this case was a six-year-old female who I was actually treating her father, and her father came to me and said, you know, my daughter just sustained an elbow fracture, and I really don't like the way her elbow looks. Can you take a look at it? So I said, of course, I'd love to evaluate her. So she came in, and she sustained a supracondylar humeral fracture, a type 3. There are four types of these fractures, and she sustained one that needed to be repaired surgically. So she underwent the typical surgical procedure and ended up having one of the most common elbow deformities, which is a carrying angle deformity. So I saw her, and I was curious if I could treat this deformity. So I looked into the research and found that not only was PT not recommended for this patient population, but that there wasn't much evidence on carrying angle deformities and correction of that in any population. So it kind of sparked my interest into this case. Can you give us uh, your opinion on why this case is novel or unique? 
What is the piece about your case that really is interesting or would be captivating to another PT to look into? So I treated this patient with a combined mobilization of her elbow. And I think what makes this case unique is number one, you know, joint mobilization in the pediatric population is always interesting. I think there's mixed opinions about how the grading in which which you should perform in a pediatric population, but also the fact that this was a case where PT hasn't really been indicated for this population. So treating this patient population with something other than exercise hasn't been explored before. I would also say that I think that that just the fact that PT has typically not been indicated makes this interesting because you had really good results trying to get that information out to other professionals in healthcare where PT fits in different places that they're really not realizing that PT is useful is another piece of your case that's pretty inspiring. So tell us a little bit more, if you would, about anything else in the background that's interesting or get into the statistics of what you found when you initially evaluated this little girl. Definitely. And to go on to your earlier point about physical therapy not being indicated, this was a recommendation put forth by the surgeons that was based on two studies that found that while physical therapy improved motion quicker, at two years there was no difference and the patients generally had full, if not nearly full range of motion. So the thought was that kids move organically on their own and therefore the need for external motivation or cueing from a physical therapist might not be necessary. Those studies only performed exercise, and they were pretty much looking at general ranges of motion in both the sagittal and frontal planes, whereas the caring angle piece of it is a combined motion. And I think that's what makes this interesting, is that we did a joint mobilization to change a combined rotary piece to that elbow. But a little bit more about this case. This patient sustained one of the most common elbow fractures in children, and she was the perfect age because the most common age is between five to seven years of old, and she was six. And there's equal incidence both in males and females with this. So she fell, she's playing on the bed, she fell on her outstretched hand, which is the most commonly reported mechanism of injury, and she sustained this extension type supracondylar humeral fracture. When I looked into the research on this, I found that between 50 and 80% of these fractures do result in some sort of carrying angle deformity. The majority of them are cubitus varus, which was not the case with this patient. She had a cubitus valgus deformity, but most of them do end up having some sort of deformity. And this deformity has been written off to be cosmetic and doesn't really affect function. But looking further into the research, I did find a couple case series that are looking at these individuals two to three decades later and finding that there is some instability in the elbow with this type of deformity. And at that point in time, the only way to correct it is a osteotomy to correct the deformity. So it's a subsequent surgery, which I think is potentially a reason to mitigate the deformity if possible during the initial stages of the injury. Absolutely. So those adults that ended up with issues down the line, what kind of functional limitations were they having? Did the case studies indicate what what the actual fallout was for them? Yeah, so it was mostly not being able to achieve full range of motion. 
because the deformity is affecting both the sagittal and frontal planes, you're not going to be able to get full extension or full flexion. And so they had enough of a deformity and enough of a lapse in range that they were functionally limited in those reaching tasks or, you know, depending on which deformity and which direction was limited. Tell us a little bit about how she presented when she you initially evaluated her. So when I first saw her, she did lack some flexion and extension elbow range of motion, but it was probably to be expected post-op. When I first saw her, she was nine weeks post-op. And the major thing that stood out to me was that the carrying angle deformity, as well as her hesitation to use her arm. And this was something that her father had noted. So she played baseball and she also danced. And her father said, you know, she really can't do those sports anymore because she's not really able to use her arm. And he didn't know if it's because of the deformity, because she was lacking range. So that was something that I noticed that she had some compensatory movements from that disuse from the procedure and the subsequent immobilization. So the two things that stood out to me were her carrying angle deformity and her unwillingness to utilize that arm. Okay. Did she indicate that there was actually pain with these things or um, more of just a range limitation? She did report mild pain, which she rated 2 out of 10. But she said the more she moved, the better the pain got. Um, So she would say, when I first start to dance, it hurts when I try to stretch my arm. But then after I'm dancing for a while, the pain goes away. And I was able to reproduce that pain by a extension and abduction joint mobilization, which was exaggerating her carrying angle. And when I found that on exam, that sparked the thought of, well, if her pain is being reproduced by exaggeration of this carrying angle, potentially the carrying angle is the cause of the pain. And if I could change that carrying angle, I might be able to offload that lateral tissue and mitigate that pain. Yeah, that's great clinical reasoning. So she's potentially developing a secondary issue with that joint compression. What was your findings objectively when you started evaluating her? What was causing the restricted carrying angle? I believe that objectively what was causing the carrying angle was causing her pain was the limitations in the elbow motion itself. So when I evaluated her uh, elbow specifically, I looked at medial and lateral glides, which were both limited, as well as those combined motions. All right. So based on that, can you describe the treatment that you performed on her? Yes. So I combined a humeral ulnar extension and adduction joint mobilization, as well as an elbow flexion with longitudinal distraction joint mobilization. The latter one is a Maitland technique where we use some sort of rolled towel to create longitudinal distraction at the joint as we're moving the elbow into flexion. And the initial technique of the combined humeral ulnar extension and adduction was something that I came up with to try to stretch those structures in that rotary way. Okay. So a little bit of problem solving is you're finding how that specific patient presents. Yes. I'm also enjoying that you uh, were being creative and taking the base information that you had and developing new techniques. What was it that led you to come up with something that wasn't necessarily in a textbook? Well, based on the evidence saying that general flexion and extension exercise and stretching didn't seem to make changes in carrying angle or function in this population, I felt that potentially something with those structures needed to be combined in order to really 
get at the joint restriction in play. So I thought straight plane motion might not be able to get at the brunt of the issue if the combined motion or exaggerating that carrying angle is what brought on the pain. Because she didn't have any pain with flexion or extension and isolation. It needed to be combined. So I felt that as though in order to appropriately offload that lateral elbow joint, that I had to combine the motion going the opposite direction. Yeah. So you built in the accessory joint motions. Was there anything else um, interesting about her treatment or anything else that you wanted to share about the treatment? Yes. So in addition to those two manual interventions, I also had exercise. And so I think with this case, you can't separate the exercise from the manual interventions because they were implemented together. The exercises were pretty much designed for her to utilize the new elbow range. So when I performed that mobilization, her range, she had a within session change of carrying angle. And I would then perform an exercise that encouraged her to utilize that range to try to re-educate those muscles to work in that new range. A lot of these exercises were designed to be fun because she was six years old. A lot of them were um, designed with the purpose of encouraging use in the new range, as well as encouraging her to use that side and also trying to be engaging and fun so that she'd want to come to therapy. Yeah, because she is six. Again, you have to use some creativity to engage her. What were some of the actual exercises you did that she seemed to find the most fun? I'm just curious. She loved throwing one of the Swiss balls. So I was trying to encourage her to get elbow extension and we would play catch with the Swiss ball, which would encourage her to move through the full range. I also encouraged her to dribble with her affected side, like she was dribbling a basketball, which we would count how many times she could do it in a row to help keep her engaged. And then another one she really enjoyed was moving marbles across the floor from a cup into another cup. And we did this on both sides, one to work both an open and closed kinetic chain for her elbow. So on the one side, she would have to weight bear on that side, which she was hesitant to do. And then on the other, she'd actually have to move through elbow extension range of motion. Do you uh, work very often with pediatric population? I tend to see pediatrics when it's something similar to this, but not in a traditional sense For someone who might be a little intimidated by dealing with a little six-year-old, can you describe how perhaps it wasn't that intimidating and um, you were able to use your clinical reasoning and be creative and come up with um, activities that are appropriate, but also entertaining for a six-year-old? I definitely agree that working with pediatrics can be intimidating, especially if it's not something you're accustomed to. I think with this specific case, she was a very well-behaved child, and she had her father there throughout the session, so I felt like I could get the information I needed, and she allowed me to perform this joint mobilization on her for the time allotted and was able to stay engaged, so I think that it made it very easy. If it was a case where that was more challenging or the patient was younger and not able to perform this, I think that keeping them engaged and trying to explain as best you can is helpful. Good work with that. So you saw her for 11 visits and you indicated in your write-up that you actually had achieved most of your goals by, by nine visits. Is there anything else relating to the timeline or the progression that's helpful to fill in the, the blanks of what her treatment looked like for that time frame? Yes. So for the first three visits, she did have pain 
with the mobilization because we were stretching that lateral elbow joint. So I kept my grading at a three plus to try to modulate pain and induce and decrease mechanical hyperalgesia. But then at visit four, she no longer experienced pain. So I felt comfortable increasing my grading to a four plus in order to maximize the time under tension and improve her tissue extensibility. And once I began to increase the grading, that is when I saw the changes in carrying angle progress. And then by visit nine, she had achieved almost equally to her other side, just two degrees different, which is within the error of the goniometer. So I didn't push that any further and just had a couple visits to try to make sure she was maintaining that range. And then I had one visit just one month later because I was curious if over time that range would resolve towards her baseline or if she'd be able to maintain that range. And I asked her father, you know, how often were you performing the home exercise program? And he said, we haven't done it at all, to be honest with you. So uh, she was able to maintain that range with just returning back to dance and baseball and her typical activities without need for additional mobilization at that point in time, at least. You had also done some outcome measures. Do you want to just briefly tell us the final outcomes for her? So I had her father fill out the global rating of change, as well as the activity scale for kids. And when we filled out the GROC, I had asked her father to When you have a child, you know, sometimes the parents are the ones coming up with the things that we're looking for. So I had asked him to identify what he believed to be the main issues that we were trying to address with therapy. And he said using her left arm, because that was something that he saw she wasn't doing, as well as uh, participation in baseball and dance class, and just the way the elbow looked. And for all three of those things at discharge, he rated that plus six, which was a great deal better, and met the MCID of plus two. I also had him fill out the activity scale for kids, which is something that I looked at that looked at the ability of the child to dress themselves, care for themselves, and it was a much more specific outcome measure for a six-year-old. However, he was filling this outcome measure out retrospectively as this wasn't something I had given them on the initial evaluation. It was something that as I developed this case, I realized I wanted something more objective than the the grok. And so I asked him to say, hey, where do you think she was when she first came in compared to where do you think she is now? And she pre-therapy scored a 59%, which indicated moderate disability. And at discharge, she was 88%, which indicated mild disability. But looking at that actual outcome measure, a lot of the things that scored lower that wouldn't have allowed her to be 100% were not age-appropriate activities that they were things that her parents were helping her with just because she was six years old. So I felt that she really achieved the maximal function that was expected for her, but it was a retrospective analysis. So it's hard to say if that pre-therapy score would have been different had she filled that out, um, had her father filled that out on the initial examination. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. I was going to ask what she was limited with preventing her from being 100%, but that explains it if she's age-appropriate activities. In the discussion, you made a few comments. Is there anything you would like to share here about your final synopsis of the case and how you would uh, think about your your results and what you might do moving forward or what what indications there are for further research, what you'd be interested in knowing moving forward. 
I think this case suggests that there's a potential with this patient population to reduce the carrying angle deformity that's commonly seen post-suprachondral humeral fracture repairs. And I hope that it suggests that potentially the dysfunction or the elbow instability that may be occurring two to three decades later could be prevented if this was addressed at the time of injury. And potentially having some of these subjects avoid a subsequent surgery to correct their deformity. So my hope is that this case study inspires someone somewhere to research this topic and to see if this was a unique case or if this is there's a potential for resolution of the carrying angle and how that might correlate to elbow function from a longitudinal standpoint two to three decades later when the bones have fully ossified. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing your case. Do you have uh, anything that you're working on moving forward related to research or further case studies or anything um, professionally that you're working on? So I have an idea for a case series that I might be interested in pursuing. And I've had a couple patients, some with actual cervical instability that have some sort of um, congenital bony abnormality that's creating the stability, as well as other cases where it's more of a dynamic instability. So all the anatomy is there. However, they don't have the strength to support themselves. And I've seen very similar outcomes in these two types of patients in children. And I'm interested to see if I can formulate some sort of case series to put this together that kind of shows the benefit of dynamic stability of the cervical spine, regardless of if you have a true cervical instability. Great. Sounds interesting. And then lastly, I'm just curious, do you have anything that you're really excited about or looking forward to as it relates to um, physical therapy as a profession? So real broad question. You can take it any direction you want. I am very excited about direct access that's happening in physical therapy. Um, Illinois recently got passed. And I believe this is a huge opportunity for physical therapists to begin um, to be the first point of entry for a patient. And I think that it's going to put a lot of ownership on us to have great diagnostic skills and patient education and clinical decision-making and get the patient into some sort of care and management as quickly as possible. And I think that that is something that's super exciting that's happening. I also really am excited about the pain science discussion that I commonly am hearing amongst my peers. I I believe that we are the ones that often have this conversation with the patient and the ability to communicate this message. And I think that that pain science piece is important for us to understand and to teach. And I think that that's something that's becoming much more common, very influential, especially with all that we know about the opioid epidemic and medications and the effects of that in these patient populations. And I'm also very excited about the interdisciplinary care models that are popping up around us and treating the patient and us becoming, you know, part of a team that can help manage pain and, and function. And I think that we're all learning from each other and, and that's something that's really special and starting to happen. Mm-hmm. Wow. I would agree with you on all three accounts. PT is certainly an exciting time and there's lots going on and much to look forward to. I really appreciate having the opportunity to chat with you today and have you share about your case and how you're using clinical reasoning and manual therapy in your practice.
This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT.